Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein A Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science. In the studio with me today is Dr. Scarlett. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to have you back. I am really happy to be back by on the an team. early Sunday morning. Yeah, by the team, you know. Uh, we were going to have Dr. Lauren, but uh, she's got one of the things that you can't have while you're on radio. Oh, laryngitis. <laughs> So I said, don't come in, please. Stay home. Yeah. Yeah. You can take a day off. But we're all good. We've got three guests uh, coming up on the show, folks. And then some news at the end with uh, Scarlett and myself. But uh, let's dive into our first guest for today. On the line with us all the way from the University of Wollongong is Dr. Natalie Matosin. Natalie is the head of the Minds Lab in the School of Chemistry and Molecular Bioscience. Good morning, Natalie. How are you going? Good morning, Dr. Shane. I'm well. How are you? I'm good. It's good to chat to you. Now, you work in the area of stress. And one of the things I found interesting when you send some of the information to me is, for the most part, at times, stress is good for us. Please explain. Yeah, that's right. So we need some level of stress in our lives because this is what gives us motivation. It's what helps us to wake up in the morning and get out of bed. Um, A little bit of nerves can um, help us with performance as well. Um, yeah, but unfortunately, we are living really stressful lives, and mm. at some point, it crosses a threshold where it's not so good for us anymore. Yeah, there must have been a time. I assume I always think back to the you know the days on the savannah when something was trying to eat us. Is that where we sort of developed that stress response, so that our bodies would do what was needed to get away? Yeah, absolutely. So the way that we're kind of wired is so that. <clears throat> excuse me, is so that we can um, we can flee from uh, from danger. But unfortunately, our brains haven't evolved uh, with our lifestyles. So when we um, experience stress nowadays, it might be work-related stress or financial stress or um, could be so many different things. However, I guess our brains are still thinking that we're standing in front of a tiger and that yeah. hasn't that hasn't really that hasn't really changed we have the same response. Yeah, I know. And um having Yeah, I was going to say I know a lot of people um that's how they describe it to me when they're giving public presentations and so forth and I say well you're not going to get you may get eaten partially by the audience but you're not going to get fully eaten like you would with a big cat. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. But our bodies don't know the difference. Um Yeah, and so I guess because we have these really stressful lives now, we're experiencing too much stress because back then what would happen is when the stress had passed, we would, um, our stress response would turn off. But what's happening now is that we have this kind of chronically activated stress response, um, meaning that things are kind of, you know, accumulating and um, this could have adverse impact on our health and our mental Mm. health. Yeah, indeed. That's really interesting. I, I'm wondering, asking for a friend, not my first, for myself, but what is, that, what is that healthy line between a good amount of stress and a detrimental amount of stress? And does it change like per individual or how can we find yeah, that balance? I, mean, I think that this is very individualistic. Um, 
And I think that this is a challenge for all of us is to find kind of where is that line for us because some people can deal with a lot of baseline stress and they're kind of okay with that, whereas other people can't. They get overwhelmed and their stress system is flooded. And part of the reason for this is because we have obviously um, – uh, there's a part of it which is environmental, which is, you know, things that we experienced early in life when we were wiring our stress systems. But then there's another part of this, which is just our genetic makeup. And some of us are kind of very primed to have really um, just responsive stress uh, stress systems. So it doesn't take much stress to really send us over the line. And, um, and so, yeah, this is one of the challenges in our research because um, it's very difficult to study this. It's very stress as a concept is very complex. Yeah. One of the things I find interesting in what you just said is the, the idea that, you know, some people do deal with stress differently. So if I'm under a certain amount of stress, in terms of my biochemistry and the potential damage that does, does it matter how well I deal with it? Like if, you know, if those sort of stress hormones are popping around my body, does it do the same sort of damage to me regardless of how well I sort of outwardly deal with it or deal with it in life? Do we know? That's a, that's a really good question. I don't know the answer to that, but I would say that if you uh, – we call this – I don't have a psychology background, but in psychology this is called emotional regulation essentially. Mm-hmm. So it's your ability to be able to kind of experience things and then to be able to regulate your emotions. And so I, there, there's definitely evidence that people that are better at emotionally regulating um, can deal a lot better with stress and they have a lot less chance of going on to develop mental illnesses. Right. So, so your coping mechanisms and your ability to – put the stresses that you're experiencing into context can definitely um, have an impact on your long-term physiology. Yep, yep. Now, of course, the best way to do this is just to start cutting up brains, right? I mean, that's, that's, what, <laughs> that's what you guys do in your, your lab. You, you yeah, examine yeah. brains. So, first of all, what sort of brain, you know, what species are we talking about in terms of the brain examination here? Yeah, we're talking about human, human right. brain. So um, I don't li- um, I don't work in a morgue. So I, I guess when people hear that I do postmodern brain research, they think that I'm in a morgue underground somewhere in the dark cutting up <laughs> corpses. And, <I'd- laughs> and that's not it at all. So we have brain banks all around Australia um, that specialise in um, the collection and handling of postmortem brain specimens. So they run donor programs where people can donate their brain to science. And then these, um, there are scientists and neuropathologists and doctors involved in these programs. And when somebody dies, um, if they're on the registry to donate their brain, um, then the brain bank will contact them and um, confirm that they still want to do that. And they can take, the, a neuropathologist will remove the brain and then brain bank staff are the ones that do the, all the dissections. And we as researchers just get little tiny slivers of samples, which um, then we can study. Yeah. And what do you look for in those slithers? And are they particular parts of the brain? Like, do you say, oh, look, I'm, I want the prefrontal cortex. Don't give me the amygdala. I don't yeah. want that. Yeah. <laughs> like, is there kind of like a, is there a selection process as to which parts of the brain that you, you get? Yeah, so it depends on what uh, – it, it's part of our experimental design. So the way that we get the tissues is it's essentially like writing a grant application. We have to write an application to the bank and say, you know, how many samples do we want? Where do we want them from? And the reason that we, we were doing these experiments is because we're looking for chemical and physical clues that are left behind in the brain. 
So our background is studying mental illness. So what we're really doing is looking at um, people that donated their brain to research that had mental Ill- that lived with mental illnesses, um, and we're looking for clues about how their brains were changed because this is how we find novel drug targets. Mm. And in terms of mental illness, uh, you know how that's a really big spectrum. Is there a specific set of sort of conditions that you focus on? Yeah, so my lab is focused on looking at um, the major psychiatric illnesses. So we look a lot at depression, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Um, but my lab has a special focus on understanding stress. So um, we, we also look at other disorders such as anxiety disorders and PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder as well. Right. Yeah. I, I, oh, Scarlett's jumping in here. Oh, yeah, I was yeah. just wondering, what does the brain look like Maybe maybe it does or doesn't, but what does it look like when someone's just undergone a lot of stress compared to when that stress has actually become a mental health disorder? Is there a difference? Yeah, we recently did a study um, which was led by my excellent PhD student, Dominic, um, and what he did was he did this special kind of staining technique where you can visualise the fine morphological properties, so the fine physical properties of brain cells. And... Um, Basically, the structure of brain cells, they have all these kind of fingers that come out and those are the sites that connect to each other. So that's how neurons form these connections, which makes our brain circuitry. And what we found is that in people that have been really exposed to stress during their lives, that they have less of these connections. Um, And actually, what we were also able to do in our study is to separate the people that had experienced the stress early in their life compared to those that experienced it later in life. And if you experience extreme stresses as a child, you're much more likely to have even further decreased um, connections between your brain cells. So this is suggesting that there are really persistent and long-term effects of um, experiencing severe stresses during life. Yeah, that's such a an interesting concept, isn't it? Because we, I mean, we've talked on the show many times about the idea of the the brain's plasticity, and it sounds like in in that particular area, the plasticity is probably not as plastic as as we would hope yeah exactly and i mean it's just this idea that you know children have very very plastic and soft brains and they're very vulnerable and so um adverse experiences early in life have a far greater impact than they do if you experience the same stress as an adult Mm. and probably part of this is because as an adult you can emotionally regulate so you can't do that as well as a child. You're still learning to do that. Yeah. Now, have you ever looked at a couple of brains where you've got a, like a city dweller and a country dweller and, and looked at the comparison between the stress? Because one of the things I've always noticed is when I get out of the car, when I drive up to the Dandenongs or anywhere gorgeous and scenic, the moment I step out of the car, something about the air, everything, I just feel different. And I can imagine if you lived in that environment all the time instead of living in the stressful sort of confines of a concrete jungle, that's got to have some effect on the brain. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I haven't done that um, that kind of study before, but I think there's definitely research to suggest that, um, you know, that this is very – our environment has a massive impact on how we feel. And um, in schizophrenia in particular, there's definitely higher levels um, or higher rates of schizophrenia in cities compared to, um, yeah, in in rural places. So um, is it all related to stress? I don't know. Um, But I think that there's, you know, there's definitely something to it. I also just love driving out into the country. It's just you can feel 
all of your stress just dropping off your shoulders. It's beautiful. Yeah, I always thought it'd be good if we could uh, bottle that somehow. You know, so if you're <laughs> yeah. going into a stressful situation, whether it was a, a difficult doctor's appointment or giving a presentation or whatever else, you could just sort of spray a bit in your face, and and yeah. it, it, your, your body would react like you just walked out yeah. into a, a country. Well, maybe setting. that could be done like through visualization, right? If you just close your eyes and pretend you're there, that would probably be. Not the same, but, you know, maybe you could mimic it. I'm thinking about it right now because I'm on radio, so I don't need to, you know, no, one, no one can tell what we're up to. Natalie, look, it's been great talking to you. It's, it's fascinating work. I, I love the fact that you're, um, you're looking at the little bits of brain and you have to apply for them and so forth. Is there any push in this space at all, just before you go, in the area of sort of organoids, you know, the little mini organs that people yes. are growing? Is that starting to impact your field as well? Oh, absolutely. So we have lots of groups, um, you know, in our institution and colleagues of mine that work with these mini brains, they are fascinating. Um, And yeah, and especially they're getting more and more well characterized and what we're able to do with them is becoming um, even more interesting. So Mm. I think that that's definitely something that's on the horizon as a growing um, field that's going to take us leaps and bounds in neuroscience. Sounds fantastic. Dr. Natalie Matosin, University of Wollongong, thanks so much for being a guest on Einstein and Gogo. Thanks for having me. Folks, we're going to take a break for some important station announcements. And when we come back, we'll have our second guest. We're going to be talking about dark matter. So prepare yourselves. I am be, prepared. It's going to be heavy. There's, there's a little joke for <laughs> Or is it light? Uh, well, we'll find out. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gago. In the studio with us now is Dr. Jaden Newstead from the School of Physics at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Jaden. Hi, thanks. Good to have you in here. Now, we were uh, back and forthing on Twitter, I think. It might have been a dark, a dark matter argument. No, I've never got that far. No. <laughs> no. Dark matter is one of those areas where I think it's fascinating. You know, people don't realise just how much activity is going on. First of all, what is the, the sort of gap in the model of the universe, why do we need dark matter as as a thing to exist? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, and we should always come back and ask ourselves why. Mm. Uh, so we have a lot of very varied uh, observations uh, across many scales uh, of the universe. So starting at like in the, in galaxies, we observe that uh, there's not enough matter to account for how we observe the stars are rotating. Right. So yep. basically you, you, you're sort of weighing the galaxy and you, you come up short when you just look at all the stars and you say, yep. well, there there's, has to be more stuff here that yep. we don't see. And that, that observation uh, is the same when you do it on the scales of galactic clusters or on the scales of the whole universe right. and cosmological uh, observations. They all come up saying somewhere around five times as much matter is required than what we can observe. Uh, as normal atoms. I love one of the things I love about this though is like, and, and I always have a go at the biologists for this, but I was going to say physicists <laughs> are so good at coming up with simple terms for extremely <laughs> complicated things. What should we call it? Dark matter. Yeah, so it was originally in, in German, it was Dunkel Materie. Yeah. And I would only know what Dunkel means because uh, of German beer. So if you've got a Dunkel <laughs> beer, it's Dunkel Hefeweizen. It's, yep. it's dark. Darker beer. Darker yep. beer. Yep. And yeah. Yeah, and so now you're you're a theorist, so you you look at you know if we go searching for this stuff because we can't see it with our radio telescopes. Yeah, we can't see it with our optical telescopes or anything like the James Webb telescope. Anything that sees in the optical ranges with light, I assume 
we can't really use gravitational lensing experiments at this point to see it, although they oh, no, no, they pick up can. the reaction yeah. to it, yeah, to it being there because it yeah, obviously. So the only observations we have it are gravitational. Yep. Yep. And and so what you have to do as a theorist then is is look at ways to go and find it. And I mean, how do you approach that? Yeah. So it's it's quite difficult, but there's a whole bunch of different ways that we do it, and. Uh, I can't remember exactly who came up with this, but it's a cute way of saying it, is that we look by make, break, and shake. Make, break, and shake. Yeah. Okay. So make is the idea that you could try and create some dark matter, maybe in the lab. Uh, so a good example of this is the Large Hadron Collider, the LHC. Yep. Uh, so they're smashing protons together, but there's a chance you might create some dark matter in that reaction. Right. Now, since dark matter doesn't really interact, it just leaves the detector, and you have to try and observe the absence of the dark matter. So right. you look, you try and like count up everything that's come out of the collision and you, and you look for something that's missing. Yep. There. Yep. Now the problem with that is that you don't actually, that doesn't actually tell you that that is dark matter, the stuff in the galaxy. Right. Because yeah. you've just made something that doesn't interact. Yep. Yep. Which could be something else. It could be something else yeah. like neutrinos, yeah, for yeah, example. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, then, so moving on another type we call break is when you look in the galaxy, there's a chance that dark matter may annihilate with itself. So dark matter just in the galaxy is floating around. It could bash into other dark matter and annihilate, and that could produce something that's visible. Okay. Yep. Or it could decay if it's unstable. But yep. it would have to have a very long lifetime, but it could be slowly decaying and producing some observable signature. Yep. So we call that break, break. in the dark matter. Yep. And then the last one, and that's this is what I mostly work on, is shake. So dark matter floating through the galaxy... Uh, to be sort of rotationally stable, so sitting in the galaxy in a nice way that keeps everything stable and the way we observe it, it has to be moving at a few hundred kilometers a second. Okay. And that means that as the Earth's moving around, Earth's moving around the Sun and the Sun's moving around the center of the galaxy, uh, we get a large flux of dark matter coming through. Right, it passes through us. Yeah, and yep. it passes yep. right through our body. Yep. Yep. Um, so similar to the neutrino flux from the Sun, that most of that goes right through us as well. Indeed, yeah. Yep. So with neutrinos, it's about a trillion neutrinos uh, or passing through, say, your pinky finger. It's one centimeter squared per second. Yeah, mind blown. <laughs> yep. dark, dark matter, we don't know how heavy it is. So we know how much, what the density of dark matter is. But because we don't know the mass, we don't know how many particles are coming through. Right, right. Um, and like you were saying before, you, you mentioned like, is it, or is it light or is it heavy? We don't, we don't actually know. We don't have a very good bound on the mass. If it's very heavy, there might be only 10,000 or 1,000 dark matter particles going through your finger at any one time, any second. Uh, if it's much lighter, uh, there could be a lot more. It could be millions or right. millions of yeah. particles. And, and so how do we detect that then? Like if, it, yes, if, it, if so that much of it will pass through something as small as your finger undetected, that means it doesn't interact much, right? So, yeah. so how do we detect it? We are counting on there being a small interaction. And there are reasons to suspect why that might be. And that the shake part of this is that, so when it's passing through a detector, there might be a collision with an electron or, or a nucleus in, in the mm -hmm. detector. And well, it'll cause a little shake. Uh, that's the shake. Um, right. And so yep. we look for that recoiling electron or nucleus, which have a very small amount of energy. Um, and you, you look for signatures of that. Yeah. Now... The part that is cool for Australia, of course, is that you're involved in this new experiment, which uh, I think is about to start. I'm not sure if it's started yet, using the stall 
gold mine, which is was no longer being used. And it's like, hey, there's a gold mine here. We need to go somewhere secluded, like in a, a mine shaft is probably, you know, as, good, as quiet as it gets. And so they're building this detection system in store now. Yeah. So I, I should just stress, I have the easy job. I'm not building this thing, yep. uh, making sure it works properly. I am on the, the theory side. Um, so, yeah, what they've done is, or what they're doing is, uh, building a detector based on sodium iodide crystals, and they're going to be very pure, and it's not finished yet. Right. And this, the the lab was commissioned last year, so the lab is is ready. There's a space now, uh, deep underground, um, about a kilometer, and then by the end of the year, they're hoping to have the detector installed, and then sometime next year, they should be commissioning and actually taking physics data. Yeah, that's wild, isn't it? So yeah. how do you shield a detector like that, though? Because presumably, I mean, there are many things that interact with electrons and, and nuclei of, of, um, of atoms. So for this to work, you have to make sure all of those normal things, cosmic rays, et cetera, et cetera, are not around. Yeah, so the first step is you go deep underground. So there's many labs around the world. Uh, Supple, the one in Stoll, is the first one in the Southern Hemisphere. And, yeah, you try and put them a kilometre or more underground. And what that does is it shields you from all cosmic rays yep. that are coming through. And by going a kilometre, you get about a factor of a million. So you go from having, like, one muon per, uh, per minute hitting a centimetre squared to yep. something like one per year right okay uh so that that's a good first step and then you actually put in more detectors to make sure if a muon does come through that you see it uh, and then you put the thing in a big vat uh, in this case of of a scintillating material that they can use to see any other radiation coming through and then finally you use um just more shielding and then the detectors right down the middle so it's like an onion you put lots of layers of things right. around it in, in the hope that you know one piece will get through uh, yeah, the dark matter will just go straight through. Right, Same straight with through. neutrinos. They'll come straight through all the shielding and everything. You can't stop them. Uh, but you can then, because there are so many of them, uh, even though it's a rare process, you hope that one or more, or we need more than one to, to be able to claim a discovery, uh, yeah. and that, that it will interact and then... We'll and, and so one of the things I remember was amazing when... Um, when we built the you know the LIGO system, the gravitational wave detection system, mm. was you know you switched it on month or so I can't remember the the, the it was very soon after we switched on yeah. bang detection yeah it was actually in the engineering right it wasn't even they yeah. didn't even said we're starting yeah, to yeah, physics yeah. data and and, <laughs> and I, I think back I've given a few talks about that and I think back and that that particular event that they detected started traveling towards us like over 13 mm. billion years ago yeah. And they just happened to switch it on just, right, the, right just in time, right, to pick that up, which is yep. which is mind blowing. Yeah. Now, since then, of course, they've seen many events, yep. and so the events are more frequent than you would expect. With the dark matter detector, do we have a, a sort of an estimate or a, a theoretical sort of prediction of how often we will detect an event? Yeah, that is a bit of the problem with dark matter. So we have a lot of models of dark matter. There were some original benchmarks that suggested some uh, level of interaction, but now we've really broadened our horizon. So theorists have come up with lots of different ideas mm. of what dark matter could be. Uh, and some of them won't even interact in, in, in these sorts of detectors. You'll need a whole different type of detector. So it's the experimentalist job to go out and try lots of different methods and we'll try and come with some idea, um, some consistent idea of what dark matter is based on all of these experiments. Yeah. Now, it could 
they, they, it's entirely possible from the calculations that they could have observed dark matter a decade ago when they were running right. experiments. Uh, now it's sort of a waiting game. We hope that any time you put on a new big detector that, that you'll see something. And so it's, it's always an exciting waiting game. Yeah. So what would an interaction look like? Can you, for a biologist or mm. anyone else, can you tell us what you would expect to actually observe? Yeah, so in these detectors, you're looking for either a, an electron or a nucleus recoiling. And all that is, it's like you've got, you've got some kinetic energy in the atom. And what that does is it deposits its energy into other things. So like it might into, it'd be into light or it might be into electrons charge. So electrons can be read out easily um, electronically. And then the light, you need something to see it. So they normally use these photomultiplier tubes that are really sensitive at detecting photons. So the end, go- the end thing you see is, is photons or electrons. Yeah, it's, it's a wild ride. I think um, it's one of those things where I, I always hoped that we would detect gravitational waves in my lifetime. Mm. And yeah. I figured, you know, I gave them about 40 years, yeah, give or take. And we did it in the first month. It was yeah. like, wow, um, dark matter. I'm worried, you know, this is because there's been we're, we're narrowing it down, aren't we? There's been so many different yeah. experiments, that, and this is this is part of the way science works that people often need to appreciate is that sometimes it's about elimination of possibilities. And with dark matter, we've eliminated quite a lot so far. Like the parameters where it can exist are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah, they do a little bit, but there's there's plenty Still of lot. space there to look. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Is is there a reason why I mean this could get into too deep physics questions, but I'll let you know. We like with so much dark matter presumably in in galaxies and in the universe Mm. in general, Mm -hmm. why don't we see accumulations of it in the same way that we see accumulations of matter in terms of, you know, suns, planets, you know, etc. Yeah, so there could be small accumulations of dark matter, but they they would be hard to detect. But the the most uh, really, what that that observation is actually just telling us about dark matter. So the fact is that the the halo of dark matter, we call it the halo, sits um, around our galaxy. So it's, mm. it's very sort of puffed up. Right. Um, dark matter is sort of a lot more spread out and not condensed, like you're saying. And part of that is reason is well, the difference is with normal matter when it collides, it dissipates some of that kinetic energy as light and yep. other interactions. And it sticks. And that lets yeah. things stick yeah. together, yeah. And yeah. there's chemistry that makes things right. stick together. In dark matter, there would be a lot more restricted. There's probably not a lot of dark matter chemistry, but we don't know. Um, but there's what must be missing in dark matter is a, a way to dissipate that energy yeah. so it doesn't actually collapse down. And what percentage of the universe is made up by dark matter, do we think? So if you're asking about just the matter of the universe it's about 85 percent yeah so we're missing missing a bit (laughs) yeah yeah it's five times as much dark matter as there is normal matter and so with dark matter are are we now sure that dark matter exists and there's not something else explaining that like missing mass yeah no that's, that's a very good question so there's definitely this observation of dark matter that has to be real like it it it's just been so many observations across many different uh, systems. But so the common one that, get, that comes up is, well, why don't you just change gravity? Mm. And there's a few answers to that. One is that it's, it's theoretically extremely hard to make it, like you've got to sort of bend over backwards to make that work. The other answer is that when you look at different galaxies, you actually find a bit of diversity. So some have more matter and less dark matter. And there's even been some galaxies that look like they have no dark matter. And then there are some galaxies which have a lot of dark matter. And so if 
if you're saying this was gravity, then the gravity is acting differently in those games. Yeah. It's a bit harder to explain. Where Dark Matter sort of naturally explains that through the history of each individual galaxy. Um, and there's also, on the bigger scale, you can look at big colliding uh, clusters of galaxies and you can actually see in the lensing that you were mentioning before, mm. gravitational lensing, you can see where most of the matter sits. And it's not sitting where the galaxies are. So we have this, you can sort of tell that there's other matter there. Yeah. Um, and it's not in the same place as where the galaxies are. Yeah. It's damn inconvenient, isn't it, Jaden? We're yeah. going to <laughs> we're gonna have to nail it down. Um, thanks so much for coming on Einstein oh, and Gogo today. Can't me. wait to hear as the results start coming in from the stall program. And it would just be extraordinary if um, that was something that came out of Australia. And I know it's a hugely international team that yeah, works in this space, is, yeah. but, um, but still, you know, for that to be something that comes out of, you know, what Australia was originally originally you know so popular for you know being gold and then having these old mines and so forth um used for science in this way is just extraordinary yeah, so cool. fingers crossed and um let's know thank you all right folks uh, that was dr Jaden newsted from the school of physics at the university of melbourne we're going to take a break for some music and we come back in just a moment with our final guest for today triple r on fm digital online and via the app Welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. In the studio with us now is Dr. Amy Lockman, who's a Senior Research Fellow in the Food and Mood Centre at Deakin University. Amy, welcome to Triple R. Thanks so much, Shane. We've met before, apparently, you were saying. We have. In here? I forgive you else? for forgetting. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> My memory's so bad. It was about a decade ago. Oh, well, you know, that's, uh, for me, that's a lot of neurons ago. Because I'm losing them fast. <laughs> I suspect I'm losing them fast. Now you're you're a psychologist by training, I am. Um, but you're working in the food and mood centre. So, what what drew you into the Felice Jacker um, juggernaut of food and mood down at Deakin? Yeah, so I lead the microbiome stream there. I was fascinated with this emerging literature about 10 years ago when I started Mm. to look into it about how microbes in the gut actually can affect the brain and our risk of mental health conditions. And at that time, there were lots of animal studies coming out and we've been working on trying to get more human studies out there to measure the gut microbiome and see how it might be involved. You know, I've I've had way too many guests on this show talking about the microbiome and now I get scared whenever I take antibiotics thinking, what Mm. is this going to do? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Like when we go and and we get a course of antibiotics, uh, presumably that knocks a big portion of our microbiome out. The evidence suggests that most of them will bounce back within about three months. Okay. Obviously, it'll depend how many courses you need and at what time of life. You know, if it's in early life and you have lots and lots, then it's a bit more of a critical period and it's hard to bounce back. But for the most part, you know, antibiotics have been essential in life-saving therapies in the last hundred years so we really need to um, keep them going when required i'm I'm not not advocating throwing them out at all for the microbiome's sake but but be aware that they do so does that mean there will be a temporary effect for sure and that may change your your mood presumably they could do some people do experiencing that experience that but it's more likely just to have some gastrointestinal symptoms yeah I can. No, I won't talk about that on air. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting though because the the microbiome for me is something that it sounds like we're still sort of discovering mm. more and more about it. Do we have any idea at the moment of the sort of complexity level of it, or are we still sort of ticking away at that? Um, no, we well we know it's a lot more complex than we understand, mm. but we're very far from even mapping what an ideal one looks like. Right, yeah. and and is there a comparison we can make with other animals 
of with simpler microbiomes or do they all have similar levels of complexity? It's a really good question. We do a lot of our work in rodents and mm. uh, there are enough similarities for that to be a useful thing to do. But the tricky thing about humans, as with all kind of behavioural and psychology experiments when it comes to translating from animals to humans, is that we have so many more environmental inputs in our lifestyle. We can make different choices. We're not stuck in a cage. We eat different things. Yeah. And so um, understanding the microbiome is, is made even more difficult by, you know, the beautiful spectrum of diversity in all of our lives. Yeah, I love that. Now, I'm going to ask a question here, and you you, are, you can say move on, because uh, if you like, because this is just my curious brain going nuts. Do fish have microbiomes? Yes, I'm sure they do. Oh, I thought you were going to say move on. <laughs> <laughs> but also move on, because I don't know anything about them. <laughs> Sorry, I'm fascinated by fish. Sharks, you know, sharks, microbiome, I assume they do. <laughs> I, I was going to, I was wondering, it made me wonder, if you're studying as simple as you can, can you study an insect microbiome? Does that exist? <laughs> yeah, that... I think fruit fly studies exist in the microbiome. Wow. Every micro, a very um, sort of natural environmental niche has a microbiome, so absolutely. Right. Poor Amy's thinking this is not what I came on for. Yeah, um, I stick to humans personally, so <laughs> let's get it. back to those. Um, now, the, the interesting thing you've been looking into, of course, is this green space scenario with regards to where we work and so forth, and I, I suppose the impacts that has on, on us as people. I mean, what, what sort of things are you in? investigating there in terms of the I guess the overall person and what that means mm. so as you mentioned earlier um, we feel different when we're in natural environments mm. we often have that getting out into the country effect or stepping into a bushwalk or a rainforest we just instantly tend to slow down our breathing and feel a bit more interested and sort mm. of relaxed and that's there's a lot of evidence about how being in nature impacts our well-being our physical well-being our psychological well-being from reduced heart rate reduced stress uh, reduced risk of all-cause mortality. So dying from anything goes down the more exposure you have to nature. It's quite right. profound. But um, And that's great. We should all get out into the outdoors more. That's one take-home that I think you can yep. safely take away from all of these studies. But the reality is that our modern lives don't allow us to live in forests, and perhaps that wouldn't be ideal anyway for lots of reasons. We have to work inside and at desks. That's sort of the reality of modern work and life. So I'm really interested to know how we can bring some of that evidence about the impacts of nature on our mental health and physical health into our indoor environments to make them better and how um, help them support us. Yeah. I, I, I can't remember how we first interacted on on Twitter, I think it was recently, but I may have posted some video footage of Singapore Airport. And I'm not sure if you've been there, but they have this incredible indoor forest, which is just, you know, airports are a place that just suck the life out of me, to be frank. Mm. Right? They're, they're one of the worst environments in terms they're of... They're very stressful for many yeah, people Yeah, very too. stressful. Very. I mean, I don't like flying, so it doesn't help, but, mm. but just the whole place. is It's it's a concrete jungle. Every, everything's flat walls. It's kind of, you know, the colours are all neutral. They're kind of awful. Someone's either trying to trying to check your bags or trying to sell you something. It's not, <laughs> it's not a nice environment. But it, in Singapore, they have created this environment in there, which is just phenomenal I, I i don't know what the count of trees is but it's very large mm. i mean that seems to be sort of a, a template for what we could be doing it's a wonderful example of biophilic design which is this idea of bringing nature and natural elements indoors exactly for that reason to harness their benefits mm. for well-being so that some of those environments that are more sterile or stressful can be more habitable and hospitable for humans which is what they were built for after all yeah and I'm, I'm guessing that we also have two scenarios here. One is our workplaces, but one is our homes. I remember a few years back when I was looking for a new home, there was one I went to where it seemed like there was a room cut out and they'd build a little arboretum 
in the middle of the house. How and, beautiful. And sadly, this house was out of my price range. <laughs> but it was like, I, I didn't care about the rest of the house. I just wanted the, the, that internal structure because mm. it was just, was so calming in the middle of the house. But so there's residential properties as well, presumably, and workplaces. Yes. And those lines have blurred recently, haven't they? So mm. many of us do do a lot of our work <laughs> from home. I, I was wondering um, what the ideal like workplace looks like that's biophilic um, and just really how many pot plants I should be putting on my desk to make it <laughs> ideal space, I suppose. Yeah, good question. As with all of these things, there is no one ideal and it's going to differ for the individual. Um, it seems the colour green is really um, calming and fosters creativity and I, I think I picked up on your green room um, mm. description from the Triple R um, Studio oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I remember Recently. That yep. So, yes, the colour green seems to be one aspect. But in terms of plants, there's, it seems to be this Goldilocks effect as well where, yes, you want to see some natural life in your space if you can, either from a window into the outdoors or bring some indoor plants in. But if you have too much, it seems to be a visual distraction, a bit like right. clutter can be. So, and that the ideal number will vary for people, but uh, I think studies capped it at about 30 different types of indoor plants tends to have a kind of distraction, wow. distracting effect when there are more than that in your in your uh, visual field. Are there particular types of plants that work differently on this? So for me, I'm a fern guy. <laughs> I love ferns. Like ferns are my thing. And I've tried, I'm trying to grow some, you know, at home. I've mm-hmm. got one going pretty good, you know, a properly resourced Tasmanian tree fern that was, um, you know, comes with a certificate so they haven't just stolen wow. it. And you know, I'm trying to keep this baby alive. It's going okay. But like, the pressure. I, I know. It's a lot of pressure, mm. actually, because these things are, shall I say, really expensive. And, and also, I'm mindful that there's not many of them around. Right. They're hard to get. So, but I find that environment particularly, you know, calming and, and so forth. I think my, my colleague Ewan, who's often on the show, he just likes the outback bush of Australia. You know, I think that's probably his, his go-to. Are there different types of plant sort of responses and so forth that we're aware of? So a lot of it, I think, will be down to individual difference. That's really hard to study scientifically, or at least hasn't been done yet. Perhaps it's getting into the sort of first world problem type. You know, if we've got enough green space and we probably don't need to worry about which kind of people will work with what kind of plant species. But there is this phenomenon in plants that's called fractals. And in fact, fractals can be found elsewhere, but fractals are repeating geometric patterns that change in size mm. in a landscape and it seems like there's something about seeing fractals that has this calming effect on our brain it sort of provides this attentional um, restoration or a place to rest because we're so used to evolutionary speaking looking at fractals in nature so perhaps there are more in ferns or there's yeah. something about the fern structure of leaves that that does that for you that's so fascinating because i have such a terrible memory of fractal mathematics when i was in early uni but you're right there's the fractal patterns in ferns and certain certain arrangements in, in terms of the measurement of this though like how do you go about determining the sort of stress levels and the cognitive potential changes that result from these environments so it's the same way as we do in other psychology experiments we measure well-being usually through subjective uh, validated questionnaires mm. You could measure cognition through, uh, you know, a validated psychometric assessment um, or just people's self-reported sense of how things are going. Of course, you need to account for other factors and do a control group ideally and things like that. Yeah, cool. Now, just before we let you go, the... uh 
the food mood centre down there at Deakin, is it? Is there an indoor forest? Have we got something going that... <laughs> I wish. We're just starting to look into this, so maybe that will be the outcome after we've got the results, but, yeah, not not just yet. I think I've got a bit of sway with Felice. I think we could swing Excellent. it. Just at least a few conifers or something in the middle of the middle of the place, you know. <laughs> Why not? It'd be nice. Amy, it's, it's great having you in the studio. I think... Um, this is an area that, as you say, like the stress levels, we talked about this earlier with our first guest, Natalie, the stress levels that people are experiencing, especially at the moment, seem to be just going up and up mm. and up and psychological, you know, accesses, you know, almost going down in a way, you know, there are not a huge number of psychologists available at the moment and people are having trouble accessing time and financially it's problematic. We've got to do other things to augment That's the right. System, I think yeah? we need to pull every lever we can. And this is a really potentially low cost and low risk way of supporting uh, well-being. Firstly, just get out more, though, into the outdoors yeah. where you can and then think about the fancy things about your indoor space. Yeah, and I think people forget Melbourne, you don't have to drive far no. to get to some awesomeness. That's You can just look up to, into trees and into clouds and see fractals every day, so you don't even have to drive anywhere. <laughs> it's like this person's looking into my brain. <laughs> Amy Lachlan, thanks so much for coming in today and chatting to us. Um, good luck with the ongoing work and keep us appraised as to what sort of things we should have in their office. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Folks, that was Dr Amy Meet Lockman from the Institute of Mental and Physical Health and Clinical Translation Impact in the um, Food and Mood Centre there at Deakin University. We're going to take a break for some music and, uh, sorry, some important station announcements. And when we come back, uh, Scarlett and I will be doing some news. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Yeah, welcome back. Uh, Scarlett, it's great when all the guests are great. That was fantastic. It makes that. my job so easy. <laughs> I learnt a lot. Yeah. I'm getting uh, some more pop plans. New words. Yeah. Uh, you can't just chuck a couple of succulents in and say, I'm done. Is that? Mm. Yeah. Well, if it's 30, I've got 29 left to go in my office. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I think, uh, well, because I, I typically work from home, so I can wander out into the ferny environment that I'm trying to create That's under nice. the harsh Australian sun. Let me tell you, it's not that easy. Now, some news, Scarlett. Yes, some news. Well, I'm going to talk about dogs, as I do for sure. a lot of my life, actually. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, but there's a lot of parallels with our show today. So we just had um, a station announcement before about about dogs and behaviour, and then there was some talk about stress before mm. with Natalie. Uh, so I met my dog when he was two years old. Okay. And, uh, what sort of he, dog? He's a corgi. A corgi? Yep. You know they measure... Um, asteroids you measure and asteroids so with corgis. Oh, I'm really excited about this. I've been measuring him, like working out what, how many of him make up an asteroid. It's been great. Uh, and so he, yep, he was looking for a home at the time, and I was not looking for a dog, which is the way it goes. Mm. And so he came home with me. Right. And I started to notice these really odd behaviours. So he would hate to be locked on the other side of the door. So you know, put outside or just he didn't want to be separated from us. Yep. And he would get really upset if people were watching like a really tense sport event. You know, like the the football game last week. Oh, really? He couldn't handle <laughs> he it. He couldn't handle it because the person watching would be really stressed and like, oh, you know, cheering or not cheering and swearing. And he would just not understand what was happening and get really upset. You know, they can't hear you, right? I'm just, I'm just putting it out there. They well, can't. no, it's the yell, it's the stress of the person, you know. So no, he I, would, what I mean is the oh, people on the TV can't I'm, hear you I'm when you're... I'm very aware of that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so these... Over the last nine years that we've had him, these behaviours have progressed. Some of them are more manageable, some less, right. some are worse. Um, but, you know, if you talk to a lot of other people who have dogs, this is a really widespread problem, mm. anxiety in dogs. Yep. 
And it became a lot more evident, I think, when we went through lockdowns and people got dogs or they were spending a lot more time at home with their dogs. Then when they went back to work, yeah. these anxiety behaviours started coming yep. out. They weren't happy. And I think we all just want our dogs to be happy because they're so lovely to have around and we want them to be happy and healthy. So I think understanding any part of these anxious behaviours is really important. And so a new study came out having a look at the neurobiological side of these anxiety behaviours. And what they did was to do MRIs on dogs that had anxiety and dogs that didn't and okay. see what, how their brains changed. Now, um, the healthy, the, there was no change overall in the whole topography of the brain, mm -hmm. but they had a look at what they call the anxiety circuit, which is where I guess they expected to see changes. So that includes brain areas like the amygdala, the hippocampus, the, the thalamus, and these other areas. And what they found was that they were significantly different between dogs that had, had anxiety and dogs that didn't. And what was really, really interesting is that this is analogous to what happens in human brains too. Right. So humans with anxiety disorders and without them, they have these same changes. So that was really cool. Now, they were able to link certain symptoms of, the, of dogs, like uh, increased fear of strangers and noise and unfamiliar dogs, uh, lowered excitability and lowered trainability, which Patch, my dog, he, yeah, that's him, um, with the, these changes in these areas of the brain, so this anxiety circuit. Uh, so that was really interesting. Um, and sort of what this, this big question we're left with now is are anxious dogs... Um, are they anxious because they have these brains that have differences in mm. the anxiety circuit or are they developing these changes? Right. Like, yeah. So it's, uh, that's a big question that hasn't been answered yet, but it, you know, just being able to understand a little bit more about what's going on in Patch's brain yeah. and working out how to better manage that because we know more about the neurobiology of it is great. Plus, it can also help us understand anxiety disorders in humans because of how similar these changes are. So it was a really cool study. Yeah, it's interesting because, it, you know, you can almost see the answer coming out that, yes, it's happening because of these interactions, but some dogs are probably more susceptible to that change than others. And so, you know, you build upon that. Just, you know, I think people are the same. You know, some people are more susceptible to certain anxieties than others. And as a result, when they're exposed to certain environments, those things cause problems, you know, quite substantially. So it's it's fascinating. We, and we use dogs so much for I, – I know a few people who use dogs as um, support animals yeah. and often around anxiety and I, and I think you know they are such calming animals so the idea that you know I'm not sure what sport you're watching poor patches you know getting stressed oh, out um, but yeah that's something that I, I suppose you know we don't think about a lot is that our animals do require that and I remember having dogs years ago and the thing that used to really cause them problems was uh, New Year's Eve because the fireworks, you know, which were fun for everyone else. But for, for many dogs, in particular dogs, I had, I had one Siberian Husky who used to try and get under the couch, but the couch was about it had about an inch gap between the bottom of the couch and oh, the and the floor so you know there was no way this the spatial reasoning there wasn't is not going to work but he would he would try and get oh. under the couch to hide so you know like and then i had another one that just didn't care oh, no okay. big deal at all no yeah. you know we just we just stare up at the sky like you know this is great so you know understanding that is is something that's important but yeah interesting stuff very interesting stuff well Thank you, Dr. Scarlett. Good having you in the studio again. Yeah, it's been a great day. It's been a great day with some amazing guests. Uh, thank you to all of our guests for coming in today. We very much appreciate this. It's um, People don't 
probably realise this listening to the show, but we have the show booked out for months in terms of guests. We have so many great people wanting to come on, which is just like it is so endearing that you know people want to communicate their science all the time, and, and most of them are from you know around here. You know, not far from from the station. They're you know all in Melbourne, which is great. So we. We do appreciate that. We appreciate their time, especially given it's Sunday morning. It's Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> I've sort of after you know thirty odd years of, of this program, I've kind of just accepted on those Sunday mornings. This is what happens. But but most people, when you tell them it's Sunday morning, they're like, oh, uh, you know, it's a bit of a surprise. So um, we do appreciate them giving up their time. On that note, have a fantastic Sunday. Remember, science is everywhere. I'm Dr. Shane, and we'll chat again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.